Hey, great to have you here today. If you are here uh, for the very, very first time, uh, super welcome to you. If you are here with family because you're out of town and you're visiting, super welcome to you. If you just, you know, wandered off the street again, uh, having been missing for four or five months, welcome. And if you are a regular surge uh, attender and this is your church family, welcome. No, no, no one left behind, as the song we just sang said. Um, it's spring, a week without snow, things are getting better. Uh, if you've got your apps or Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 24. We're going to be there, but let me just pray for our time in God's Word, and we'll see what He has for us today. God, we thank You for Your love. Um, we, we, we are uh, in awe of You, and why You would, knowing us, want a relationship. And yet You do. Your love is that deep and wide and all-encompassing. So as we open your word today, would you show us something of you that would change something in us? In Christ's name, amen. Well, listen, before we get into our, our passage this morning, um, uh, I just want to give you a little backstory for the passage, if I can, kind of set the, set the stage. Uh, it's been Passover in Jerusalem for the last weekend, and uh, Jesus of Nazareth has been crucified by the Romans. He has died. He's been laid in a tomb that's been borrowed. Uh, and on the third day, Sunday, two of his followers in town for Passover uh, pack up, and they, they head for home. Uh, now, before they start walking, they hear some weird stuff going on. They, they hear from some women who had gone to the tomb and, and didn't find Jesus' body there. <clears throat> and they had some strange tale about an angel or something saying that, you know, Jesus was alive. And then some of the disciples went over to the tomb and they confirmed that the tomb was empty, but they didn't see uh, Jesus alive. So it seemed to them that this was all just kind of utter nonsense. And they finished packing up and they, and they headed for home, a little village called Emmaus, about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. Uh, we find out later that one of these people is named Cleopas, a, a man. Uh, the other one is never identified, never named, but uh, I have my suspicions. I think it was a couple. I think it was his wife, uh, and they were headed home. Uh, and and, and also, by the way, I'm not going to create a theology around that. If you think that there are two guys, that's fine. I don't care. That's not the end of, that's not the critical thing. But on the way home, they are uh, met joined by the resurrected Christ, who, uh, who deigns to walk alongside of them. And yet, who he is is completely hidden from them. They, they, don't, they don't recognize him. Uh, they can't really see that it's Jesus. He, he's just a guy, uh, probably going home, they suspect, just like they are from, from the festivities over the weekend. And Jesus kind of saunters up and sort of asks the moral equivalent of, well, what's up? He says, hey, wh what, are you, what are you guys talking about? And they kind of say, you know, seriously? Uh, there is only one thing we could possibly be talking about. I mean, everybody is talking about it. Are you the only person who's been in Jerusalem this last weekend and completely oblivious as to what's been going on there? Which kind of is kind of funny if you kind of think about it because the person they're talking to knows full well what's been going on in Jerusalem the last few days. He had a front row seat for it all. But uh, Jesus doesn't give himself away. He lets them tell the story, probably including how they didn't buy the whole rising from the dead thing and just kind of headed home. And then he says this, you goobers are clueless. 
The moon is bigger than the elephant. Don't you know anything? Well, he doesn't say that. He could have said, you know, the, the, way, the, the reason the moon looks smaller is because it's further away and the elephant's closer. So it looks, the elephant looks big. Okay, anyway. I was amazed because we had, we have our twins when they were little. Uh, I used to tell them that, you know, about things that were, they were amazed by the fact that something really, really far away, as it got bigger, it would get bigger. And so it's like, I say, watch this thing get bigger and bigger and bigger. Anyway, they were amazed. It didn't take much to amaze them at, at one and a half. Anyway, Jesus didn't actually say that, but uh, it could have helped this girl on the screen. He, he does say this, oh foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And he's referring, of course, to the uh, vast array of information in the Old Testament about him. And he says this, was it not necessary? I mean, you, if you read that stuff, you would, you would know that it was necessary for this Christ to suffer these things and enter his, to his glory, be res- resurrected. And okay, he does all that. Still, they are completely clueless. So Jesus spends the rest of their walk home, it could have been several hours, uh, unfolding all the Old Testament scriptures to them about this Messiah, about himself, and how he had to suffer and then rise from the dead. And when I get to heaven, I want to I hear that message, by the way. <laughs> they're still clueless. But they're enjoying this guy's company so much that when they get home, Jesus acts like he's going to press on to the next town or whatever, and, and they insist that he stay with them, stay the night, because it's, it's late already, it's getting dark. And so uh, they fix a meal, they sit down to eat. Jesus sits down to eat a meal with them. And uh, it was during the breaking of the bread at that meal that God opens their eyes and it's revealed to them that the person sitting across the table for them is actually Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. So they're eating this meal and they realize, hey, th- this is the risen Christ. And then immediately he vanishes from their sight. I mean, he completely disappears. What are you going to do? Well, even though it's late in the day, even though it's probably dark outside, even though it's now dangerous to travel the roads at night, within one hour they are packed up and they are headed back to Jerusalem. And I think they're thinking, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, we are the first people to see Jesus risen. We got to get back there and tell these folks what's going on. And when they get there, they find the disciples terrified because they're expecting that the Romans are going to come and get them and do what they did to Christ to them. They're huddled in this room. It's locked, right? And they, they knock on the door and they let them in and they start sharing the story of what's going on. And they're kind of amazed, I think, because the disciples don't laugh at them. They say, you know, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. We, Peter just saw the risen Christ as well. And so they're all kind of going, wow, something's, something amazing has happened. And we'll pick up the action right there in Luke 24, verse 36. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. <laughs> Cracks me up. But uh, what is it? Because what, what happened? They were terrified. They were startled. They were frightened. They thought they saw a spirit, i.e. ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit, a ghost, does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved with joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it. 
before them. You've seen two videos, if you weren't socializing, of a bunch of animals eating and a bunch of people sitting in a hallway eating. It's an interesting account here that Luke gives us. Luke is letting us know that after his resurrection, Jesus kind of engaged with these disciples in a conversation, and he asked them for something to eat. And Luke says the disciples gave him a piece of fish, a piece of broiled fish, not just any fish, broiled fish. Now, there's no indication in this narrative that Luke has some kind of a word goal from his editor, right? That he's got to have a certain number of words, 500 words, 1,000 words in his little narrative he's writing. And he's a few words short, so he's trying to come up with some extra details to throw in there to kind of, you know, round out the story, get the word count up. That, that's not what Luke is doing here. There's actually some really critical detail. It's packed full of meaning and significance, and Luke has a very specific goals in sharing that with us. And I want to show you three things that Luke is aiming at by talking about this piece of broiled fish. <laughs> One, Luke is actually highlighting that the physical bodily resurrection of Christ is a fact. I mean, you notice what's happened, right? He appears in a room. Now, whether, it's, whether he has somehow managed to open a locked room or just kind of manifested himself inside the room, um, if a guy can disappear from Emmaus and show up in Jerusalem a few hours later, having survived crucifixion, he figures he can get into a, dope, a door that's locked. I kind of feel like he just appeared in the room out of nowhere. Because it says they were terrified. They were startled. And if you, if you know a dead person that you saw die, and all of a sudden they just kind of show up and start talking to you, you're going to be a little bit troubled. You're going to be a little bit disturbed. You're going to be stunned and rattled, and they were. And Jesus says, why are you troubled? I mean, they thought they were seeing a ghost. And Jesus says, well, why are you troubled? Why, why do these doubts arise in you? Now, the, the Greek word is interesting there. The Greek word for doubts is the word we get our, dialogue, our word dialogue from. It's the word we get dialogue from. And Jesus is saying, look, I, I see that you guys are having a dialogue in your, with your own hearts. They're, they're thinking something maybe along these lines. This, this cannot be happening. This cannot be real. We, we must be imagining this. There's no way this is going on right now. And Jesus says, well, why are these dialogues arising? And then Jesus addresses the dialogues, their doubts. He says, look at my hands. Look at my feet. Do you see the nail scars on them? Go ahead, touch me. See, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones like I do. Jesus is saying, look, I, it's harder for you to believe. I'm really here. I'm, I'm, I'm back. And says they disbelieve for joy and are marveling. And Jesus further addresses their doubts and says, okay, okay, you got anything to eat? And they give him this piece of broiled fish and he eats it in front of them. He's, he's, he's chewing the food. I mean, he's swallowing the food. He's doing that to prove that he's not just a ghost. He's not some spirit with no, no body. It's not their imagination, right? He's, he's not... They're not hallucinating. It's not some smoke and mirror thing going on. He really is alive and eating this fish is giving them proof of his bodily life and existence. He's saying in eating this fish, hey, this is proof that you're not imagining this. I really am here. Now, now this is eerily similar to what we see in Luke chapter 5. Jesus kind of meanders into town there's a mourning going on because in the particular house over there, a little girl has gotten sick and died. And everybody knows. And they're mourning the death of this little girl. And she is dead as a doornail. Everybody knows that. There's no, no question, no doubts about that. She's dead. So Jesus says, oh, hang on a second. He goes into the room and he says, you know, wake up. Wake up, little girl. And she wakes up. 
And then Jesus gives her back to the parents. And it's interesting what he says to her. Give her something to eat. I mean, look, it's not like being dead works up an appetite, you think? Jesus proving that she really is alive. I really did raise her from the dead. Because you can say what you will about dead people. They don't eat stuff. And that's what Jesus is doing with this piece of broiled fish in the room that the disciples are locked into. He's convincing them of the proof of his bodily resurrection. John Calvin said it this way, as Jesus feeds on the fish, he's feeding their faith. He's convincing them. He's persuading them. We see in Acts chapter 1 that for the next 40 days before Jesus ascended into heaven, he does all kinds of stuff, all kinds of wonders and signs and stuff. He meets with all, all, many of the myriad disciples, and uh, these disciples believe because of these this testimony of seeing Jesus do this kind of stuff. He, they're transformed. They start proclaiming that Jesus is alive, which is kind of weird because they were, they were hunkered down in this room, terrified of what the Romans are going to do to them. And having now been convinced that Jesus is alive, they don't care about the Romans anymore. They blast into the streets and they're proclaiming Jesus with the loudest voices they can possibly do. They're preaching before multitudes. They do it under the threat of persecution. Many of them will actually die for that belief that he was alive. Well, Jesus is, or Luke is reporting on this post-resurrection meal, I think, to address our own doubts too, right? Because don't we have some internal dialogue going on from occasion, on occasion? Some doubts? Like this toddler on the screen, right? We wonder sometimes if it's really real. I mean, is Christianity really true? Yeah, I mean, is Jesus really God? Is he really the Son of God? Is he really the Savior? Is he really who he claims to be? Am I just a knucklehead for buying into this stuff? Is it just a myth? Is it a legend? Is it some sort of made-up thing? I mean, could it really be true? And Jesus' physical resurrection says, oh yeah. Oh yeah, it's true. It's a verifiable historical event. I mean, like any other great event in human history, Jesus' resurrection is a verifiable historical event that actually happened. I mean, it wasn't just Jesus' Jewish followers. Historians actually employed by Caesar to document the goings-on of the Roman Empire, right, matter-of-factly. Factly, is that a word? It should be. It should be a word. Let's make it a word. It's matter-of-factly. They write matter-of-factly. They write simply that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. He was dead. He was buried. And then he came back to life. That's in the Roman documents of the history of the Roman Empire. So this, for them, for their, for their perspective, this res resurrection, there was no doubt about that. It happened. I, I got to thinking this week about other great monumental historical events in the world that uh, have impacted human history. The Visigoths, right, attacked Rome, sacked Rome in 410 AD, 24th of August to be exact. That was actually 1,608 years, eight months and seven days ago as of today. And for those of you who are counting... You weren't there, but my guess is you actually believe that that happened. That is actually a verifiable historical event. Or maybe a little more recently, Declaration of Independence, July 4th, 1776. 241 years, 8 months, 28 days ago as of today. A group of men declared independence from Britain. It happened, and my guess is none of you have any real doubts about that. Or something more dear to our hearts, maybe uh, how about D-Day, June 6th. 1944. 73 years, 9 months, 26 years, 26 days ago today 
Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy and changed the course of human history. And along with that, the personal resurrection of Jesus Christ happened on April 5th, 33 AD. 1,984 years, 11 months, 27 days ago today, Jesus really did rise from the dead. It happened. You can count back the days to when it occurred. So here's the first word I would give you from this piece of broiled fish. It's faith. You can actually have confidence. You can have faith in the resurrection of Christ like you believe in any other verifiable historical event. He really did rise from the dead. Bodily, physically, Christ really is alive. He really is everything he claimed to be. And if that is the case, there's not a person or a thing in all of creation that's more important than him. Second thing with this broiled fish is this. Eating with someone is an invitation to a relationship. Four places in the New Testament that Jesus is eating with his disciples after the resurrection. Luke 24, we've already seen two of them, the road to Emmaus, the couple there, and then with the disciples in the upper room uh, with a piece of broiled fish. In John 21, we have an account where the disciples, you know, pretty much dismayed, pretty much abandoned everything. They're just saying, well, just, let's go back to do what we usually do. Let's go, let's go fish. So they're out on fishing. And they look and they see Jesus standing on the coast. And he's waving them in. And they recognize that it's Jesus. So they're kind of, okay, we got to get to shore. When they get there, he's got a charcoal fire going. And he's broiling fish on it. And he, and he cooks them breakfast. And then in Acts chapter 10, Peter's preaching to the household of Cornelius. And he says, look, I want you to know that, that Jesus rose with us. And he ate, he ate with us. This is all happening in that 40-day period before Christ rises to be with the Father. So, multiple meals Jesus had with his disciples. Why is that important? Why do we have those accounts? Well, because in the first century Jewish world, sharing a meal with somebody was a symbol of an interest in a, in a close personal relationship. When you sat down with someone at a meal, you were saying to that person, I'm interested in a relationship with you. I'd like a friendship with you. And inviting someone to a meal was an invitation to friendship. This is why it was so shocking when Jesus ate with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners of all kinds. What Jesus was saying to them is that, hey, I, I really want a relationship with you. I want to, I want to know you. I, I'd like you to know me. I, I'd like you to be in my kingdom. I'd like to, you to be in my father's family. This was shocking to them. So when Jesus asked the disciples for something to eat, it would have been shocking to them too. Why? Well, you remember these disciples, right? You remember what they had done. Completely deserted Christ. They had doubted him. They'd actually denied him, some of them. They abandoned him. One of the most shocking things I've just think about this week. They actually left his body hanging on the cross. You realize that? One of the most shameful and humiliating things in Jewish culture was for a dead body to be left out in the open. It was basically saying, this person out there isn't even worth burying. They're, they're, no, they're, no, they're more valuable than an insect. Yet they left him there. It was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who were kind of secret disciples of Christ, part of the Sanhedrin. They went to Pilate and said, hey, would you, would you allow us to have the body of Christ? And they got a per permission to do that. And then they went and got their servants. They took Jesus' body down and then they put it in Joseph's of Arimathea's tomb. These great, wonderful, super-duper disciples. 
left Jesus' dead body hanging on the cross. And now they were in hiding. They had abandoned their faith. They had abandoned their hope in him. And guess what? Boom, out of nowhere, he shows up in the very room where they are in a resurrected, glorified body. So yeah, yeah. You think there's some dialogue going on in those hearts? Those minds? Here he's alive, but is he going to still is he going to still want us? Is it possible that he can? Is it possible that he will forgive us for what we've done? Will we still be included in this kingdom? Does he still want us? Does he still want to count us as his friends after we've been so foolish and forsaken him and treated him so miserably? Could he possibly still have it in his mind to have us be part of this kingdom? But by sharing a meal with them, he's inviting them into fellowship. He shows up. You got anything to eat? <laughs> you got anything to eat? What he's doing is pursuing them. He's declaring right there his interest in that personal relationship. He's here with forgiveness. He's saying, you're, you're still my buds. You're still my guys. I still love you. I still want you to know me. I still want to know you. I want you in my kingdom. I want a friendship. I want a relationship with you. And Luke is telling us this because I think he's wanting us to address our own doubts too. Man, maybe you've had some of that dialogue. I mean, maybe you come to the conclusion that God's love is for everybody else but you. Or maybe you think you've gone too far. Maybe you think you've sinned too greatly for too long, that you've fallen too miserably, that you've been too foolish, that you've ignored him for way too long. And you got this get this idea that, yeah, a relationship with Jesus is possible, but it's really available to everybody else but me. You know, the good news of the gospel is that no matter how far you've gone, no matter what you've done, God offers grace, mercy, and forgiveness. That, that, that is the good news of the gospel. I was uh, doing this message, and I remember the movie I saw years ago. It's called Amazing Grace. Uh, how many of you saw that? But it's, it's a story of William Wilberforce in England, who pushed through anti-slavery legislation. Uh, And he was inspired to do so by a fellow named John Newton, who had been a slave trader who then accepted Christ. Uh, He was a despicable wretch of a guy, but he became saved. He became a follower of Christ. And uh, his life was completely transformed, and he made it his personal goal to, to pursue the end of slavery. And at one point in the movie, uh, Newton tells William Wilberforce, he says this, I, I really only know two things. I kind of know, I, I know some things, but two things I know for sure. One is I am a great sinner. And the second thing I know is that Christ is a great Savior. Isn't that the good news of the gospel? And here's the truth. We, we are all great sinners. Every one of us. But Christ is a great Savior. That's what the Christ is. Uh, the cross is all talking about. It takes on their doubts, takes on their desertion, takes on their denial. He takes on their abandonment and he dies for all those sins. And he took our sin upon himself and died for that too. And here's the great news. The greater you think your sin is, the greater his glory and grace for forgiving you. Please don't flatter yourself into thinking that somehow your sin is greater than his grace. You cannot plumb the depths of his ability to forgive you. You cannot reach the bottom of it. Our sin is just no match for the cross. And that's the second word I want to give you. It's forgiveness. 
Jesus in eating this fish is inviting himself and them into fellowship after all they've done. He's saying, look, I'm still here. I still want a relationship with you. I still love you. You can be forgiven. Every sin paid for fully and forgotten. You can know my grace. You can know my friendship. And this is really what makes Christianity so unique. There's really nothing else like it in the world. It is not salvation by human effort. As we've seen in Romans, it's impossible to get there by our human effort. Christianity is salvation, redemption as a gift God gives by our faith in Christ. And the only way God has allowed for redemption to actually happen. See, these disciples do nothing to earn this redemption. They're betrayers. And they're in hiding, out in a room. Jesus comes to them. He pursues them. He offers forgiveness to them. That's the second word, forgiveness. Here's the third thing. Jesus shows us what we are destined for. Jesus has a body. He's chewing. He's got teeth. He's swallowing. Muscles in his throat and esophagus are working. He's got a real body. It's a glorified body, free of weakness, never to die again. And here's some good news. For those who believe in Christ, we are destined for the same thing. The Christian hope is not simply that you get to live forever, but that you get to live forever with a glorified physical body in a glorified new heavens and new earth. Jesus' resurrection shows us what we are headed for, that all things are going to be made new. He's called the firstborn of the dead, which means that everyone else who trusts in him and follows him will ultimately become like him. They too will rise from the dead, and they too will live forever with perfect bodies, free from sickness, free from suffering, free from disease, free from hardship, free from pain, never to die again. That is the hope we have ultimately in the gospel. Now listen, we we live in a culture, do we not, that is fighting with tooth and nail against death? We declared even war on wrinkles, haven't we? Let alone death. You can actually have your body frozen so that should there be ever a cure for death, your body would have been preserved and you might actually be able to, you know, live again forever or whatever. There, there are companies that are happy to take your well-earned resources and, you know, and allow you to do this. Good luck, by the way, <laughs> if you're pursuing that. Jesus speaks into that ache we have. He says, I'm the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. He also says this, no one comes to the Father except through me. Death may put you in the grave, but if you are a believer in Christ, the scriptures say that he will rise you, raise you up, and give new life to you. You will indeed live again, and you will not live as ghosts. You're not going to live as some spirit, some disembodied entity floating around on a cloud, playing a harp, thinking, man, I got to do this for the rest of eternity. This is boring. <laughs> You're going to have a physical body, a bodily existence just like Jesus has. Philippians 3 says this, Our citizenship as Christians is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, this lowly body, this weak, flabby, sick, suffering body, to be like his glorious body. If you're a Christian, one day you're going to inhabit a physical, glorified world with Christ. And in that world, you'll move about freely with a glorified body forever. That is the ache of the human heart, to live forever. Not just to live forever, but to live forever in a perfect body, in a perfect world, free of sin, sadness, darkness, sorrow, oppression, cruelty, free of death. If you lived in a perfect world with a perfect body, you'd never want to die. And that's the hope that the resurrection of Christ gives us. It's a reality. I heard a story 
about a, a girl who was playing in an eight and under softball league. And uh, she ended up driving in the winning run for her team. I don't think she even realized it. But after the game, her dad says, hey, honey, do, do, do you realize? Do you realize that you just drove in the winning run for your team? Eight years old. You know what she said? Well, scratch that off my bucket list. And she was serious. Eight years old with a bucket list. <laughs> See, the concept of a bucket list is this. This life is all we get. So squeeze everything you can out of it. Every experience you can while you are still alive. Exotic places, wacky, extreme adventures. Squeeze as much of this life as you can out of it because it's the only one that you're going to get. So while you're alive, get these experiences in. Christian writer Randy Alcorn has written a ton about eternity and heaven and the afterlife, and he says this, the only worldview in which the bucket list makes absolutely no sense is biblical Christianity. Think about that. Because if you're in Christ, you're actually going to live forever with a perfect body inhabiting a perfect world. Beautiful oceans, beautiful mountains, beautiful beaches, beautiful landscapes, beautiful galaxies, lots to explore. Yeah, new heavens, new earth. And you're going to get to enjoy that new heaven and new earth in your glorified body forever. If you are a Christian, you don't need a bucket list because you have a Savior that's opened up eternity for you to enjoy. You don't have to do YOLO. If you're a Christian, you're going to live forever with a perfect... You won't need a bucket list because there's going to be no end to your life. And that's the third word, future. Jesus eating this piece of fish is saying to us, you have a glorious future ahead of you if you trust me and believe in me. So this fish tells us what? You can have faith in Christ. You can live with the firm conviction that he really is alive. He really did rise from the dead. That he really is who he claimed to be. And you can have forgiveness. Have your sin forgiven and be brought into friendship and fellowship with the creator of the universe. You know Christ personally as Lord and Redeemer and be known by him. You can belong to him, be in his family, not by your efforts, not by your works, but by faith in him. And that unleashes God's grace, unmerited favor bestowed by God on you as a gift for that faith. And when you do that, you've got an amazing future ahead of you. You can rejoice in the hope of eternal life despite the fact that sometimes things are miserable down here. We know where we're headed. And you can experience life in that measure even now as part of our relationship with God as it grows and you mature in that. Now look, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, none of this is available to you according to Scripture. But if you know him, if you have faith in him, his forgiveness is real and your future is real. And it's as simple as turning to him and praying. Scripture says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Simply cry out to Christ and say, look, I figured it out. I finally figured it out. I'm a great sinner. Because <laughs> you're not going to come to a Savior unless you're a sinner. And most of what God is trying to do with people who do not know him is to convince them that there is a need for a Savior. But I'm a great sinner. I'm a great sinner. But Christ, you, I now understand, are a great Savior. So... Would you? Could you save me? Could you rescue me? Would you rescue me? Why would you want to? I don't know, but would you rescue me? I do believe in you. I have faith in you. 
Would you forgive my sins? I, I don't know why you would, but I believe that you could and that you want to. Could you give me a place in your kingdom? I have no idea why you'd want me by your side for eternity. But would you do that? Would you give me a place in your family? Could, I mean, could literally, could we sit down and eat a meal together? Could we talk? Would you even deign to spend any of your attention on me? I don't know why you would, but I believe that you would. I trust you that you would. So I'm going to surrender my life to you. I'm surrendering my life to you as Savior and Lord. I'm going to trust you to bring to pass all of the incredible things you say you're wanting to do in me and for me and through me and for eternity. That's where your heart is today. You've got a card on your table. You can write that down for us. Note that you've made that decision. Or maybe you just want to talk a little bit more about this whole thing. You can jot that down. Put an email or phone number. Uh, you'd be doing some great service if you make it uh, legible. We go through all kinds of gyrations trying to decrypt the encrypted stuff that comes out on those cards sometimes. But look, if you are a follower of Christ today, this message is intended to help you have a firmer conviction, a firmer assurance, and a firmer hope in what is in store for you and me. Let's pray.